Hello, uh, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be looking uh, at some more Civil War documents. Uh, that's what we're going to be doing for um, for quite a while. It's taking me longer than I hoped, um, mostly because I was just distracted with read other readings. I've been uh, reading a lot of Stephen King, as I always do, uh, reading some Ursula K. Le Guin, and some things like that, and I've been on Spring Festival, so uh, Chinese New Year break, and I just kind of took it serious this, this year and really kind of chilled out. But um, I'm going to hope over the next week or so to, to record through the second volume of the Library of America's Anthology of Civil War Writings, which will take us from January 1862 until... Uh, January 1863, the second year of the war. Um, well, it's, it's not well. The war started what in April, so um, but a lot of the documents in the first volume dealt with the the period after Lincoln's election, uh, after the 1860 election and, and secession and all that. Uh, but now we're deep into military history. Now, of course, 1862 was a very critical year in the Civil War. Um, you know, we we saw in the last volume there were a few major battles, but um, 1862 was considerably more bloody. It really um, transformed the thinking on both sides about what the war would be uh, in terms of length, in terms of casualties, in terms of, of the amount of change that would do to American society. All that was really clear by the end of 1862. Um, what are some of the battles of 1862? Uh, of course, Shiloh uh, in the West. You have... Uh, in the east, a whole bunch of uh, battles, the Peninsula Campaign and the Seven Days Battles. That was the attempt by McClellan to seize Richmond by, by coming up the peninsula to the east of Richmond, marching up that way, relieving the, the you know, the, th the threats to, to in the north, right? Hopefully to bring the army down there and take Richmond. That was the plan failed uh, after the seven days battles but then you had the second battle of bull run you had antietam fredericksburg a series of really really crucial um bloody battles in the eastern theater um and shiloh being the largest one in the west but there's other major battles out in the western theater the seizure of new orleans uh maybe one of the more critical maybe not a big dramatic battle but one of the critical campaigns was the taking of new orleans which um really allowed the exploration of what reconstruction would be right i think if you read like eric foner's history of reconstruction a lot he, you know he starts with talking about these places under union occupation in new orleans along with the, some of the islands uh that we talked about in previous episodes were, were some of the first places taken and there was that's where uh, reconstruction would first be acted out um in terms of you know what would emancipation look like what would happen to former slaves uh, what would be the relationship with the government? What would be, uh, you know, just with the army? Just what would happen to that? And, and that element of Reconstruction, uh, which uh, to my mind is the most important element of Reconstruction, was was acted out. So we'll get some of that as well. And of course, you have the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, which sat in Lincoln's desk until the Battle of Antietam. So um, those are just some of the things that happened in 1862. So really really important year in the history of the war so as with the first volume this is a just a large collection of documents from many many different points of view uh generals uh 
journalists, observers, witnesses to battle, soldiers, a lot of soldiers' memoirs. Fill these, fill this document, fill these, this anthology. Um, Politicians, you know, those kinds of things are all included in here. So we're just going to continue going through as we have been. Um, So, anyways, uh, where should we start? Well, we'll start with the first volume or the first document in this volume, which is dated January 1862. It is Frederick Douglass's What Shall Be Done With the Slaves if, if Emancipated? And so, as we've seen, Douglass has been publishing his, his uh, journal, Douglass Monthly, um, as a place where he's been pushing for uh, emancipation. He's been pushing for the conscription of, well, not, not I shouldn't say conscription, the uh, um, creation of volunteer black armies, right? The mobilization, that's the word I was looking for. The mobilization of black soldiers to, to uh, help win the war effort and also to transform the relationship between... Um, former slaves and the and, and the government and the United States government. Um, and he also was thinking through things like like what reconstruction would look like. And I think that's what's notable about this document. What would be done with the slaves if emancipated? So he's already convinced himself that mobilization of African-American units made up mostly of former slaves and and of course, emancipation were crucial war aims. But the question of what should be done after the war um, is something that a lot of people were concerned about. Obviously, Lincoln, at least publicly, talked about colonization uh, when he did stuff like uh, made movements towards compensated uh, emancipation, uh, where, you know, in the border states where the government would just pay off slave owners to free their slaves. Uh, he often joined that rhetoric with colonization of some sort right but of course douglas doesn't agree with that he sees the united states as his homeland that he and uh other black americans helped build so um so what does he say here well well i think what he's responding to here is this idea that former slaves would be some sort of burden there would be a, a problem that had to be dealt with and something that would require resources and investment and uplift and all those kinds of things um, and he talks even here about, you know, fears of labor competition among, uh, white wage laborers and things like that. So this, this is overhanging emancipation, right? And people who maybe were anti-slavery, but not fully for emancipation fell into these concerns, right? About, you know, is this going to flood the labor market with, with, um, these former slaves, are we going to be competing for jobs? What's it going to mean for land in the West and all these things? And Douglas's responses, I think it's quite crafty. It, it does come off as a bit of a, as a, as a like a, a, a laissez-faire approach. And some people, I, I think some people have even used this document as a way to kind of say, you know, to, to criticize things like the welfare state, right? Um, you know, But anyways, here's what he says. I'll quote it here. Our answer is do nothing with them. Mind your business and let them mind theirs. Your doing with them is the greatest misfortune. They have been undone by your doings and all they ask now and really have need of your hands is to let them alone. They suffer by every interference and succeed by being left alone. The Negro should be left alone, should have been left alone in Africa, let alone when the pirates and robbers offered him for sale in the Christian slave markets, let alone by courts, judges, politicians, legislatures, slave drivers, let alone altogether and assured that they were thus to be left alone forever. 
As colored men, we only ask to be allowed to do with ourselves, subject only to the same great laws for the welfare of human society, which apply to other men, Jews, Gentiles, barbarian, Scythian. Let us stand on our own legs, work with our own hands, and eat bread in the sweat of our own brows. End quote. Now, I don't think this is necessarily an argument for like the Reconstruction governments do nothing, because in many cases, the, the Reconstruction governments were largely led by former slaves, Republicans who implemented things like public schools. And, uh, and of course, after the war, blacks would largely on their own implement, you know, establish universities, establish churches, build, rebuild, or, or what's the right word here? Like really build new communities of freedom throughout the South. That's one of the great achievements of the Reconstruction era. And, um, you know, it's not a, I don't think it's a pro-segregationist argument here it's not something like some of the things we see from Zora Neale Hurston uh, where she she's kind of saying now you know we don't need desegregation because you know we're fine separate right we don't need like what was her argument with schools like we black kids don't need white teachers to teach them they don't need to be in a white classroom to learn they're doing perfectly fine with uh black teachers or whatever so I, I don't think it's quite that I think it's uh, there's a lot of like politics in this document where he's trying to say you know we're not going to be a burden to you right it's not you know our freedom isn't going to ruin your life or be a challenge to you because we're asking only for freedom we're asking only to be left alone uh, quote he is a human being capable of judging between good and evil right and wrong liberty and slavery and is as much a subject of law as any other man therefore deal justly with him end quote um so but this is, of course, a time when governments weren't doing that much for a lot of people, right? There wasn't what we would all call the welfare state. So to judge it against the standards of 20th century, um, you know, state uh, programs like, you know, the New Deal or things like that is, is um, not right. Not right. But of course, the, the, the Reconstruction governments would try to make much, a much more what we now call kind of progressive um, state in the south and but that was done under the leadership of black people with them paying taxes and working the land and, and creating those communities as i said so it's an interesting document and i think it's one of the it's one of the most important actually that are in this section for today uh so next we have uh john boston to elizabeth boston this is um uh a letter by a slave who ran away um so i think this document i don't know if it ever got to his wife uh his wife's in maryland um and he's in virginia so he fled i guess to the union army um and this document ended up in congress as kind of evidence of this issue of contraband the the, the contraband camps and the, the the former slaves who ran away to union arms freed themselves but then uh became a policy problem right it actually contrasts with the Douglas thing. It's like, it's one thing to say, leave us alone, but it's another thing when you have thousands of them fleeing to union lines to, you know, and demanding freedom, right? And and freeing themselves and saying, give us a job, give me a gun, whatever. It is something the government sort of has to deal with on a, on a policy level, right? But this is just a, a really kind of touching document. Um, it's It's... It doesn't look like this was a document that was written by someone else because sometimes these, um, you know, people would have a letter transcribed 
you know, spoken aloud. Someone would write it and be sent. This seems written in his own hand, uh, but someone who's, uh, you know, just just becoming literate in English. Uh, of course, slaves were not generally taught to read and write. Um, but it's but there's a lot of pathos here, and this is of course a very very common problem where it was just, you know men might run away, women stayed behind. There might be kids that prevented them from running away, uh, and part of Reconstruction was like finding reuniting these families to the degree they could be reunited, and they weren't always reunited. Right? As we talked about this very early in this whole podcast series, Charles Chestnut's story the wife of his youth which is about a a, a light-skinned slave who married he had a slave wife who was very dark-skinned but after uh, reconstruction he never found her married a, a a woman a middle-class black woman and then at one point this slave of his youth um, um, came and he acknowledges her right that's the the story and so that was a very common occurrence as well. But this uh, does show this desire to meet again. Quote, and if we don't meet on earth, we will meet in heaven where Jesus reigns. And quote, of, um, the spellings are, are all over the place here. Um, but nevertheless, a very, very touching uh, document. But apparently this ended up in, in uh, Congress or in the, tech, or the War Department to, as as evidence of of this so-called contraband issue all right so the next document we have is about um somewhat connected like connected to the joint committee on the conduct of the war which was a congressional committee made up mostly of radicals who wanted a more aggressive approach to the war their candidate was irving mcdowell he's kind of most famous for the defeat at uh, the first battle of Bull Run, but he was seen as uh, a more aggressive general to command the army compared to like McClellan and uh, I guess largely him, right? And so this letter is actually Salmon P. Chase in his journal writing about the activities of the this House committee. And, and Chase, of course, is the Secretary of the Treasurer, Treasury, and he's, he's standing with his administration and the choice of McClellan as commanding general, but he's aware of the discontent among in Congress about the, the failures, the early failures of the war effort. Um, and then next we have uh, Abraham Lincoln writing to uh, General uh, Buell, uh, who is commanding... Uh, the War Department in Ohio, and he wants him to push into Tennessee, and Halleck is in Missouri. So these are two of the Western theater generals. And his, and this is kind of a pretty consistent strategy for Lincoln throughout the war, is just an awareness that the war would be long, and it would, you know, take bringing the war to the Confederates. And he really stresses here the importance of the of the Mississippi River and saying this is where we really need to put pressure on them, right? Uh, you know, we have superior numbers, superior equipment. We have the ability to push, bring the war to them, and then we're going to have to do that, right? It's The war's not going to end just by one victory somewhere in Virginia. It's going to take occupying the South. And he says that. And, of course, this is what Grant is eventually going to do, and this is what's going to eventually win the war. Uh, especially in the West, is this very aggressive and careful and deliberate um, 
a, you know, action, uh, keeping pressure on the South and seizing key objectives in, in, in the West, not just winning fancy, glorious battles, but actually winning strategic locations systematically um, and, you know, using the, this, the greater numbers. But not always that, not always just using greater numbers because, you know, like Grant, he didn't always rely on greater numbers to win those battles in the West. He, you know, was a great general, right? So that's um, that's on that. Now, related to this is the next document we have is also January 1862, which is Abraham Lincoln's General War Order One. And, and surprising to me, I think I heard about this before, but I must have forgot because it's like, oh, this is War Order One. It's coming almost a year into the war before he finally kind of took his role as commander in chief and gave a general war order. Um, he was like deferring to generals uh, up to this point, I suppose. But this is his prerogative. He's commander in chief. And here he makes specific orders that um, the army move on in, in Virginia in particular. Quote, ordering all disposable force of the army of the Potomac after providing safely for the defense of Washington be formed into an expedition for the immediate object of seizing and occupying a point on the railroad southwestward known as Manassas Junction. So this is what he wants. He wants uh, taking that strategic location in northern Virginia, this Manassas Junction, this, this railroad junction. Um, that's his goal. Now, McClellan has a different plan uh, in his campaign against Richmond, as we know. Lincoln would eventually go along with it. Um, but that's what we get next is uh, McClellan's letter to Edwin uh, Stanton, who is now the Secretary of the Department of War, and he's basically saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to follow this General Order 1 uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. One, he thinks he doesn't know how many troops the Confederates have in Northern Virginia. He's not sure he can win that battle. And he says, I have a better plan. And basically the plan is to um, land the troops kind of south, east of Richmond from the coast, and march uh, east to west on Richmond. Now, this document has a lot of details of his plans, um, which we don't really have to get into. But his conclusions, I think, are relevant of why he thinks this strategy is better and better than a, just a direct assault on, on Manassas. Uh, quote, such, I think, is precisely the difference between the two plans discussed in this long letter. A battle gained at Manassas will merely will result merely in the possession of the field of combat. At best, we can follow it up, but slowly, unless we do what I now propose, namely change the line of operations. On the Manassas line, the rebels can, if well enough disciplined, and we, ever re we have every reason to suppose that to be the case, dispute our advantage over bad roads from position to position. When we have gained the battle, what do we gain it? The question will at once arise. What do we do next? It is by no means certain that we can beat them at Manassas. On the other line, in regards to success, is certain by all chance of war. And then he goes on to how Fort Monroe base of operations is a better base of operations. Uh, seizing the capital will demoralize the enemy and be an actual tangible war goal. Um, you know, and of course this is a strategy that eventually Lincoln goes along with, although it takes months for it actually to be implemented. It's not until the summer really that that campaign is is it really begins, isn't it? June? 
Something like that. One of the seven day battles. I think in June, yeah. So next we have the famous story um, by Julia Ward Howe of the the writing of the Battle Hymn of the Republic. Uh, we have the text of the of the song, and of course the music for this is based on John Brown's body. Um, that famous tune, which uh, we talked about in the previous episodes. Um, same tune, but the lyrics were changed, and of course it becomes a very important patriotic song um, and, a, and a major you know union song during the war but it, it had legs it, it certainly is still uh one of the more important patriotic songs in the united states um but he talks about what inspired her um talking about seeing the troops in the area around washington and uh near the city of washington and that's that's what inspired her to write the poem and then the and to publish it and it was later it became you know actually uh performed or whatever um all right so um i'm gonna skip a document here just because it's a little bit something it's i don't really know what to say much about um it's a i'll just mention a little bit about this so apparently this general stone uh was was like arrested in part for like treason and and uh, largely for his for quote misbehavior at the battle of balls bluff complicity with the enemy and treachery now as we saw before this was a, a major defeat a bloody defeat for the for the union army about a thousand men died uh or were wounded in that battle um and he took the fall for it and it and he was actually arrested i don't think that happened too often um maybe it happened to others but um and here we have media reports uh by the new york times um and we actually have two articles by the new york times the first is on february 10th which is largely supportive of the arrest um, and then we got one from april 1863 so about a year later um turning this around and 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 saying it really was you know listening to the testimony and then coming on the side of general stone you know as he shouldn't be the fall guy for this this defeat i guess um, so it's an interesting kind of case of the media kind of changing its tune after hearing about more about the case, but also the, the feeling at the time of frustration over these union defeats and the, the idea that there had to be a change of leadership at the top. Right. And we're going to see the same kind of frustration from Lincoln over McClellan's inaction in, in, in the use of the Army of the Potomac, which was ready to go by, by early 1862. Um, but moving on, we get the, the first really really significant victory in the western theater and that is the battle of fort donaldson in which the confederate uh fort surrendered with uh, quite a few soldiers let me look it up i mean it's certainly not an insignificant battle uh this was this was a uh, grant's uh command army of the tennessee with the uh, mississippi river squadron helping Twenty-five thousand men uh in the union army um, of, of whom 500 were killed, 2,000 wounded, another 200 captured or missing. But Confederate casualties were 12,392 captured or missing. Basically the entire uh, um, force uh, at Fort Donaldson, major blow. I mean, the first major victory uh, in the West. And, and I think the biggest victory up to this point for the Union Army. 
Um, and our document, our window into this, we got a couple here, but the, the major window we have into this is Lee Wallace. Lou, Lou Wallace, sorry, Lou, Lou Wallace, the author of Ben-Hur. And he's writing in his autobiography years and years later in 1906. Um, as we've seen before, like memoirs by soldiers, uh, people who experienced these battles were pretty popular in the later 19th and early 20th century. Um, of course, Grant wrote one of the first of these, but other people from different levels of, of you know, from privates, doctors, to commanders would write these memoirs. Some people didn't, but you know, a lot of these came out um, as their testament to the war and their their involvement in it. And Lou Wallace, is it Liu? Liu? Lou? I think it's Lou, right? Uh, you know, most famous for this book, Ben Hur. Um, and he was a general, right, um, at the at the time in the Union Army. Uh, and he gives his account of the capture of of Fort Donaldson. And just a lot of details and anecdotes. Um, you know, he seems to remember a lot of conversations down to the exact words. Maybe that happens. Maybe in the heat of battle, people remember this stuff. Or he just reconstructed these conversations as best he could. But um, that's one window we have into the battle of... Fort Donaldson, the surrender of Fort Donaldson. The other is uh, we have is a Confederate point of view. Um, John Kennedy Ferris to his wife, Mary Ferris. Now, for me, this is a much more uh, fascinating document than the Wallace one, um, partially because it's written at the time. It's it's written just, uh, I mean, it's written a few months after the, the battle because he was captured. He was one of the soldiers captured, one of the 12,000 who surrendered. And he later, uh, he basically spent months in a prisoner of war camp of some sort. And then there was a prisoner exchange, which was commonly done during the war. You know, you have a thousand soldiers, we have a thousand soldiers. So we just swapped them out. And he was in that and he was able to then serve again uh, as a physician in some other unit, I think. So he went back to the war. But uh, just the, the, the fact that he kind of experience this makes this document just on this you know a little bit more interesting now uh, i think because it's, it's it's not as a standard point of view of, of people we get um you know like wallace being a general this is a little bit more intimate i think being it's a letter to his wife and you know he apparently had it written to her for a while because he's talking about stuff that took place like six months earlier uh but he just talks about the experience, what he saw and witnessed as the, as the fort surrendered. He had a very narrow, limited view of it, I suppose, as a, as a doctor in the fort. But nevertheless, I think his story is, is, you know, I think there's more there, obviously, with his time in a prison camp. We don't hear much about that, but it's, uh, yeah, it is what it is. Um, now, of course, the seizure of Fort Donaldson opens up uh, much of the Mississippi to the Union Army, right? Or to the Union uh, flotillas in the West. And that's what the next document is about, which is about the River War. This is Henry Wallach, who was uh, in the Navy. Uh, he commanded this ship called the Carolodent at, at the Battle of Fort Donaldston. And he later was in a series of battles, like at Fort Pillow and Memphis, uh, other battles along the Mississippi. And this is his account of those uh, of those various battles. And the important thing here, from a kind of 
from the point of view of of the strategic importance of this is we see just how that seizure of Fort Donaldson opened up the Mississippi to these activities by these Union flotillas. And what I can't stop thinking about is just, you know, all the resources that the Confederacy put into defending, you know, Virginia um, and Richmond, when that's not where the battle, the war was really won. Um, you know, they were thinking, I guess, in these Napoleonic terms of, you know, one major glorious victory, destroy the Union Army and force them to surrender, march on Washington or this kind of fancy fantasies. But meanwhile, the war is being won piece by piece uh, in the Mississippi. Right. All the way back to the, the Anaconda plan, which we talked about weeks and weeks ago. Um, now, aware awareness of this among the Confederacy. Um, now, they're going to have all these victories in 1862 in Virginia, right? Like uh, Second Battle of Bull Run and the Seven Days Battles. Really bloody, but I guess strategic victories for the Confederacy. Um, you got the marching on, you know, the invasion of Maryland, Battle of Antietam, which turns that back. That's a defeat. But then you have the Battle of Fredericksburg and into 63, you have another series of victories. So it's all these major victories in the, in the East that, you know, make it look like the Confederacy is doing well. But there were some Confederate generals who seemed to be aware that this is going to be a losing strategy in the long term. Right. And one of these guys, we have a document by him, Braxton Bragg, a Confederate general, who is basically he's, he's writing to Judah P. Benjamin. Uh, Judah P. Benjamin was the Confederate Secretary of War. Um, and he is saying here, basically, we don't have enough people to protect everywhere. Right. And we need to really defend these strategic locations. I think he's thinking of places like Fort Donaldson. Because the seizure of that did open up so much of the Mississippi to raids and attacks by these Union flotillas. And he says, like, we really need to defend these ter- these positions better than we have been. Quote, uh, what is he right here? On the Gulf, we should only hold New Orleans, Mobile, and Pensacola. All their points, the whole of Texas and Florida should be abandoned. And our means be made available for other service. A small loss of property would result from their occupation by the enemy, but our military strength would not be lessened. Thereby, whilst the enemy could be weakened by dispersion. So that he's saying, yeah, let them take half of Florida. They're just going to have to occupy it and control it. Meanwhile, we're defending what, what matters, New Orleans. Right Now, it seems to me this advice was not taken because New Orleans fell pretty, pretty quickly. Um, coming up but that's the idea here and he also says we need to really make better use of artillery which is uh you know something i think they were lagging on at least i get the sense from this document they were a little bit behind on the science and the construction and the use of artillery in the in battle and he's saying we need to do more of that that's the other part but i think the more important point here is this stress really really focus on strategic locations and not necessarily just try to waste men winning some glorious battle or defending every inch of of territory because that's that's going to be a losing battle uh what else does he say here we have the right men and the crisis upon us demands they should be at the right places our little army at pensacola could furnish you hundreds of instructors competent to build mounts gun batteries and teach them to use it our commanders are leaning learning by bitter experience the necessity of teaching their troops but a want of instructions was sadly felt so he's even thinking of things like just you know, we have enough people in this 
useless place who could be training soldiers elsewhere. So then next we have uh, an article by John B. Jones. Or no, this is his diary. Um, this is his diaries now, but he is a, he is a newspaper editor though. He was the editor of the Southern Monitor. We, if we remember him, he was writing from Philadelphia um, after Lincoln's election, and remember he he moves to Richmond and continues publishing this weekly journal uh, from Richmond after after the war. And he he actually had this job as in the in the War Department for the Confederacy. So um, so this is from his diary though. And he's also talking about like failures and, you know, it's kind of like the tide turns. We focus so much on these like union failures early in the war, um, the Ball's Bluff battle, the first battle of Bull Run, those kinds of, uh, you know, losses. But, you know, by early 62, it's kind of turned around major Confederate losses in Fort Henry's mentioned here. Of course, Fort Donaldson is on his mind. Um, where else does he mention? Uh, Roanoke has fallen. Um, and it, it kind of, sp- or no, uh, yeah, Roanoke has fallen. Uh, so this is kind of gets to what Bragg was talking about before too. Uh, so he writes in his journal here, Roanoke has fallen before superior numbers. Although we had 15,000 idle troops at Norfolk within hearing of the battle, the government would not interfere and general Huger refused to allow the use of a few thousand of his troops. So that's the same logic that Bragg has. It's like we need our troops in the right place to defend the right locations. Um, and he mentions a series of defeats. He also is commenting in his diary here on Confederate policies. Um, the Declaration of Martial Law in, in I think, is he talking about Richmond? He just says in the city and some other places. And also mentioning the Conscription Act, um, the Conscription Act, of course, uh, the Confederate Conscription Act was the first in American history. It's the first uh, draft in American history. Now, the, the Union would eventually do that as well, but a little bit later. So the Confederates have the um, honor of being the first to force people to fight for them. And, uh, you know, I think this is pretty common among interpretations of Confederate history during the war. Um, you know, the the expansion of state power like people have said that about lincoln and uh, in washington and what they did to expand state power in the war but i think more and more this idea that the the south was sort of weakened by the state's rights ideology i don't know how many people still accept that really the confederate state was pretty aggressive at expanding its power over southern society during the war and one of the ways it did it was through conscription um, but other ways as well. So um, this, there's a lot going on in this this journal entry, but a lot of, I guess, anxiety over the changes, the bad news, and how that's leading to changes in, in the policies. All right, so next we have a totally uninteresting message to the Confederate Congress by Jefferson Davis. Um, I don't even know why this one's included. I can't find too much of interest in here. Um, I guess this is a message he gave after being inaugurated for the full six-year term. I guess before that was provisional. Um, I don't know. So he was elected on November 1861, and then he started his full six-year term um, in February. 
but not too interesting. Just talks about different committee, <laughs> different departmental uh, activities. Even gets in here a little bit about like the justice department and the postal system and finances and stuff like that. Um, but he does talk about the same thing that Lincoln uh, did. Like we need to phase out the short-term enlistments and get long-term enlistments in because this is going to be a longer war. So the realization that the war is going to take a long time and it's going to require people to sign up for two, three years. Um, but then next we have uh, George E. Stevens, who was a um, he was he's a he, he's writing to the Weekly Anglo African, and he was a uh, he'd been free for a while. He was freed since like the 1830s or something, uh, and he became a correspondent for this newspaper out of New York, um, and he eventually serves as an assistant to Colonel Benjamin Tillman, and you know serving as as a laborer. Uh, in the war like a cook uh, so he's seeing the war firsthand and so this is like a report from the front in a way to the readers of the weekly anglo-african but what's really notable here is this the commentary he gives on enslaved women during um, um I'll, I'll just read some of it because it's really fascinating um he says here's an item i give you for special benefit for your fair readers the more susceptible of the sterner sex may also gather whatever satisfaction from this little story of love, struggle, and triumph may give. One of the most painful of the revolting sights one sees when surging in this land is, of slavery is the universal prostitution by their masters of beautiful slave women. There are scarcely any farms or plantations in the South that can boast of no pretty women. They are prized, petted, bartered, and sold according to the, the nature and extent of their charms. Beauties rivaling those of the Caucasian are sold at the slave markets of the U.S. No matter how loathsome to her purchasers of her charms may be, the hard, remorseless necessities of her position compel her to yield. And then he goes on to tell the story of this uh, woman, Mary Thomas, uh, and her sufferings about this. And this is, gets into stuff we talked a lot about with uh, the, um, what were they? Who's at that role? Clotel. William Wells Brown, right? The, the, the importance of sex in, in the slave system, in the peculiar institution. And here, George Stevens gets into this here as well. Just how much of this was, a, was a trading in sex slaves, essentially. Um, you know, breeding, of course, was a part of this, a, lot, a very, very large part of it, but also the, the overt uh, sexualization of, of enslaved women. Is something he gets to here. Um, um, so next we have Orpheus Kerr's uh, "All Quiet on the Potomac Bulletins," and this is this is kind of a meme from uh, this period of the war. "All Quiet on the Potomac" being uh, kind of a criticism of McClellan for just sort of sitting on his hands a little bit too much with the Army of the Potomac and the kind of the the phony war kind of feeling of these months. Um, now, of course, the war is going to heat up really a lot after June of 1862. But in, at least in Virginia, there was this feeling of kind of a, a phony war of sorts. And this is the meme for this was all quiet on the Potomac. And that was apparently created by um, um, Orpheus C. Kerr, who was actually Robert Henry Newell. Uh, that was his real name, but Kerr was the, the pen name for him. And so these are different um, letters that were published in, in, in the newspaper 
talking about just the life on the you know, of, of soldiers and the experiences on the in the army of the Potomac at this time when it was drilling and preparing for war, but not yet fighting the war. Um, and then the final thing I want to talk about today, the final document, is the another recollection of a battle, but it's a battle that's significant. That's it's like I guess Fort Donaldson. Maybe that's more famous, but this battle is significant, not necessarily for its size, although it did involve twenty-four thousand men on both sides, and and something like three thousand casualties. But it was fought in um, in Arkansas, no, southern southwest Missouri. Um, and it's called the it's the Battle of of Elkhorn Tavern, or sometimes uh, uh, the Battle of Pea Ridge. And this, although maybe not huge by later st standards, was one of the more significant battles in the West of the Mississippi, maybe the biggest. And it really won the war in that in the West in the Trans Mississippi region. Um, so it's kind of a, a battle that sort of ended. Or at least establish firmly Union control of this this region, and here we got uh, Dobney H. Morey's recollections of this of this battle. So that's what we have in the first hundred pages or so of the second volume of the American Civil War anthology. Um, nothing too striking here. I think maybe the one I think that's really worth thinking about is maybe Frederick Douglass's "What Should Be Done with the Slaves If If Emancipated." Um, and that might be it. I don't know. There's uh, nothing here is really exciting me. I'm, I'm not finding these kind of recollections of the battles, these long kind of things written 30 years later, 50 years later, the most inspiring. But, you know, they're there. I'm letting you know what's in these. So if you want to um, read it for yourself, do it. Um, but, yeah, I, that's all I'm going to talk about today. Um, as we'll in the next episode, we'll get a little bit. Uh, deeper into 1862 up through May. And um, I think we have a bit more to talk about. We got the Battle of Shiloh, right? We have the Confiscation Act, and I think we have a compensated emancipation issue. Um, so a little bit more, I think, important, interesting things to, to talk about in the, in the next episode. So I uh, hope you join me for that. It will be up shortly. Um, and as always, thank you for listening. Um, I'll see you next time.